Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the, the Berry question. Now personally, I think it's an unimaginable tragedy for the fans of Berries who have had their team expelled, who have effectively lost your football team so shockingly, so quickly, to have gone from you know promotion in May to not having a football club in September, not having the games, not seeing your name when you look at the tables, not having anywhere to go on a Saturday. It, it is. I grew up in Barnet, and even though I'm a Spurs fan, I, I've always supported my local team. I spent hundreds, you know, been to hundreds of games at Underhill. Loved it, and I can, you know, and I used to probably be a bit more passionate about it. Growing up, you know, you're a teenager, you can't go to the pub, you can't, you know, going, you know, that Saturday, 3 till 5pm was quite special. And I could imagine if that had happened to Barnet, the sort of anger, the disappointment, just the shock. And I think there was an outpouring grief across the country in terms of fans, in terms of the media... But I think that it asks an underlying question of what does it say about us? And I think there's an element of sort of grief and and it's almost sort of reflective grief. It's almost a sense of we feel quite guilty because, you know, of what's happened to Berry, because Berry's been quite harshly affected by austerity. We also think there's a sort of sense, especially in the national media, of guilt that, you know, you have all of these sort of star columnists and very rarely do they get anywhere close to the football league. It's just you you don't pay these people money to write about Bury, you pay them to write about United, City, Arsenal, Liverpool, Spurs, Everton, you know, the big clubs. And so when they sort of turn to it, it's always like, you know, what could have been done? Now I think it's it's a multifaceted question. I think the rules could be tighter on in terms of the Ownership fit and test, that's been clear for several years. but And also whether that should be more centralised, whether the FA should take more of a sort of overseeing role. But I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding about what the Football League is. I think if you compare it to something like county cricket, county cricket in terms of the four-day game, it's played in front of tiny crowds. And these are like the true believers, the people that come in day after day, and they're generally classified as being sort of older, retired white men. I mean, obviously that's that's painting with particularly broad bus strokes, but that's... That's the stereotype, and to a certain degree, that is effectively accurate in some way. And as a result, there is always a sense, there's always this sadness at the end of a cricket season in sort of September. Because you know you won't be going back, you won't be seeing the old faces till next year. And there's always then a sense of the first game of the season, finally seeing everybody. But there's also a sense of continuity. In other words, it always, in other words, you're always going to the same ground at the same time, the same fixtures. And there isn't the same sense of, I suppose, that you know, the county championship is incredibly competitive, but from a fan basis, it's far more the actual experience than it is whether you won, drawn or lost 
to a certain extent. Now, now with the Football League, it's incredibly competitive. But I think when people from the outside look in, they always like to see it's like it's they almost try to sort of characterise it in the same way as county cricket. In other words, it's the same old people, and and the fans I think contribute to this as well. In the sense that they sort of posit that it's like, oh, well, the team's always rubbish, but we just turn up every week anyway. As if it's more of a ritual than it is a act of support. And that it's more something deeply tied into the, the local area than it is the actual wins, draws and losses. And it's not true. It's not true at all. I've been to enough... Football really games to know it's competitive. People want to win. You sh you get angry when your team is bad. You want the manager to be sacked if he is incompetent. You know if the owner isn't putting in money. If any number of things is that there's always this need for success. Now that has to be, but it's a certain type of success. Now one of the the, the most interesting things that I've learned from you know the sort of extra coverage that Berry got from this tragedy is you actually hear more about the club itself that you would have never ever have got because let's face it in the lower ends of the football league a lot of places and a lot of teams seem very similar you know Berry Rochdale it's you know similar places similar towns not places that you'd ever come across in sort of normal everyday life you might visit Manchester but the chances of going to Bury unless you know someone there. It's quite small. And there's at one point in their history that there was a sense that they wanted to rename Bury Manchester North End. Now, the only reason that you'd rename it Manchester North End is to try and increase the publicity for the club. You're trying to get people from Manchester to come up or from the surrounding areas. In other words, Bury is, you know, a local name. Manchester North End is more broad. In other words, if you have success, you know, it's a form of marketing. And people refused, even though it could have worked. In other words, we all know that, you know, out of all of the oldie-worldie names that, you know, football teams used to have, that now, you know, in other words, you know, you know for example, Manchester United were originally Newton Heath. Now, I can guarantee you Newton Heath would never have won a European Cup. Manchester United could. In other words, they hated the name Manchester United. Everyone who, when they had to re come to rename the club, hated Manchester United. But they hated it the least out of all the options they had, and eventually they became Manchester United. And that moment was when that club's potentiality to be successful was engendered, born even. And that's the whole thing with Berry. In other words, the, 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 there was always there was this coverage about their nickname being the Shakers, and it's because I think something like the chairman came down before a uh, Lancashire Cup final, and said, you know, we're going to shake them up, and so the nickname stuck. And at its heart, these people, when they were creating this football club, were not creating it on the basis that it they would just be also rants. They would just hang about somewhere in the lower reaches of the football league and just exist. There was always a sense of competition. There was always a sense of trying to push on. So, and when Berry did push on, they won two FA Cups. 
and they had a spell in the first division, seventeen years at one point, successively in the, in the first division before you know in the early part of the twentieth century. And yes, eventually, obviously, you know, barriers of place isn't a huge place. Yeah, they did slip down the divisions. But even then, there were times, you know, during the 50s when they got into the, the second division. And they even got into the, the first division in the late 90s for a couple of years. And part of that was that the owner was spending too much money. And then when ITV Digital collapsed, you know, Barry went into administration. But this is where I think some of the elements of the people's conception of the football league, especially you know the media and especially people that aren't fans of it don't follow it so you know mainly premier league fans you know, your casual fan who will just from the outside looking in will just see it as being just you know something that exists you know something that effectively you know like a foundational myth a link to history so in other words yeah the football league pyramid is a great idea you know it means that your lowest park player up to your premier league is in some way linked you know it's and there's the importance, and really, I suppose, to the outsider, Football League just becomes almost like a status symbol. You get your name read out in the classified schools. Your name will be in the league tables when it's printed in newspapers. Although we now know that you know, the way how the world is changing, who gets their scores from the you know, classified you know, names being read out by James Alexander Gordon on a Saturday evening? We're checking it on our phones. We're not checking the league table on a Sunday printed in a newspaper. They're not really printed in newspapers anymore because they're on your phone. But it, it's a, I suppose, a status symbol. It's something that is a link to a history that now no longer exists or a time that, you know, or the concept of, you know, going up the leagues. And to me, the Football League, when you actually understand what it is and what it means, it's probably the best evocation of a British dream. We all know about the American dream and it's more it's it's the Potter Stewart thing. It's you know the American dream when you see it. You can't you might not be able to put it down in words in a way that you know would make sense. Or if you were to write it down, it just tends to be so open ended as to be, you know, sort of meaningless. It's something you'd put on a fridge magnet, you know, like you know, hope for everyone or, you know, anything like that or the concept of, you know, individual it's but for the British dream is that it's local pride, but it's undercut with economic striving. Yes, there's provincialism, but there's also a desire to look upwards. In other words, if you compare it with sort of lower leagues in Europe, lower leagues in Europe, let's say you take France and you take Spain, is realistic. In other words, it's people knowing that, you know, you're never really going to compete against your Marseilles, your Paris Saint-Germain. You're not going to compete necessarily against Lyon, maybe Saint-Etienne, Bordeaux, Lons, those sort of teams. They're always going to be there or thereabouts. You can add Monaco to that list. And as a result, really, you just exist. You might go on a run in the French Cup, you might go into League Two, but the actual size of these clubs is tiny. I mean, in other words, once you get past sort of League Two, which is their equivalency of our championship, it's regional. It's, you know, it's professional in name only. It's really almost semi-pro. You know, the grounds are small, 
they're not well developed and there's a realism to it and really what it is is you exist you get some money you just tied over year to year you try to develop some players you try and put on some good football but the crowds aren't particularly big there isn't a huge amount of local pride invested in these places and I respect that and I understand that that suits their history of football which isn't the same as R1 R1 I suppose, in the sense of how long it's been going on. And, in other words, you have teams like Bury that have won two FA Cups. You have Preston North End, you know, who did the League and Cup double. There is this sense that, that there's more history... There's more history to each team. So, in other words, if you... You know, I'm going to talk about Barnet a bit later on in the podcast... But these are not just, you know, creating a team in, let's say, the 1910s, 20s or 30s because people were getting into football and football was expanding, you know, in the country. This has been going on since, you know, the back end of the 19th century. And so as a result, there's far more local pride invested in it. So in other words, instead of everyone, you know, supporting big clubs... You still have, you know, there's a lot stronger sense of people that, like myself, who are Spurs fans, but they will go to Barnet or they'll go to Stevenage or they'll go to their local club because it means something to them. It means something to the community because in some ways, if you're a small French village, you're not going to become a, a, you know, a small French town. So as a result, even if your football team does really well, you're, you're swimming against the tide and you know, swimming against the current, and eventually you will fall back. And at times, even in some cases, you know that success has led to overspending. They've then ran out of money, and then the club has just gone completely, you know, has fallen apart and has just gone off the map. So as a result, you're not going to take those sort of risks because there's no greater reward to it. You might be just successful enough that in five years your football club won't exist. Whereby, if you look at Britain, our history is far more because these clubs are more invested, you know, more embedded in the local community, into the fabric of the local community. When they screw up, they don't go out of business. People will just go absolutely nuts. People will do whatever it takes. In other words, there's probably the moment you'll know British culture and British society is done is when a football club properly goes out of business and is never heard of again. I mean, it happens at some of the really lower levels. You're talking maybe 7th, you 8th know, division. But in reality, if you're talking about a professional football club, they never fully go out of business. They will be resurrected. Someone will do something, even if they have to go at the lowest, lowest level of park football to eventually go back to where they once were. And so there is this ethos of centralisation. It's a hierarchy. But it's a fascinating form of hierarchy. It is meritocratic, yet it is still anchored to the lowest ends of football. So in other words, you know, anywhere else you have you you don't really have a football pyramid. You just have you know, you have your main professional league, you have a second division, you then might have start breaking off into regional leagues, which then, you know, just basically sort of ameliorate into, you know, just amateur football. Whereby we have a particularly 
rigid system. And it's not just rigid, it's also... It's also cutthroat... <coughs> Excuse me, cutthroat. And at the same time, and highly aspirational. In other words, there is no good reason that I can see for our national leagues to go down as far as tier 5. So in other words, the conference is a national league. So in other words, you can be basically on the border of Scotland, or you can be, your stadium is three miles away from, you know, Land's End, and you're still in a national league, and that means the team from, you know, Scottish, the Carlisle could theoretically, if they got relegated, could play someone down in Cornwall. I mean, the cost alone, the, the fact that you wouldn't have away fans, but that's just it. It has to be a national league. Even, the, you know, once you're down to the seventh division, it is on, it's not regional. It's only split, uh, you know, halfway across. They draw a line. It's north and south. Not, you know, you don't have sort of three or four different, you know, geographical breakdowns. It's just one size fits all. You're either north or you're south. And as a result, what that leads to, yeah, there are downsides. So in other words, there's constantly, you get these sort of owners who are almost sort of megalomaniacal. They just rock up and think, this you know, random small team, we shall create a, you know, an empire. We will take this team to the Premier League. It's a failure to be realistic. You know, that, that always will get the shysters, your swindlers. You, you have short-term thinking. And by having such a competitive league structure... It is a constant sense of winners and losers. Whereby, if you compare it to, say, you know, continental, you know, Europe, it's not so much about winning or losing. You know, it is just, you know, you develop some players. Or you just put on a show, you just, you exist. But it is not the end of the world if you've made a huge profit or if the oppo have got, you know, the team down the road has got it into the plus. It's competitive, but not to the extent of life or death, which is basically, you know, what the football pyramid does to our thing. You know, there's is a con is a constant free market solution to it. You know, it's an over focus on profits. There's a lack of fail safes or you know opportunities to be bailed out. In other words, you know, we are. Rules are really harsh. You, if you go into administration, you get a fifteen-point penalty. You know, if you go under, you don't get put into the next division. You get, you know, you sometimes have to start anywhere from the tenth division or the eighth division, or which is just a million miles you know, away from where these teams used to be. You know, there are rules about the stadiums. So in other words, in the nineties, you know. Macclesfield, Stevenage couldn't go up because their grounds weren't up to spec. Now, if you compare their grounds to, you know, some of the, you know, third division Spanish grounds, some of the, you know, even in the second division of France, they were better. And and as a result, you, you have a an element of, you know, you have far too much stadium building and professionalism when it doesn't necessarily, isn't required. In other words, when Barnet went down to the conference, you know, there was, we played teams that were semi-pro and, and Barnet were professional. You couldn't necessarily tell the difference. Although when we lost to a semi-pro team, especially at home, 
the fans would go mental. I used to go mental. It used to be so frustrating. If you're watching people who are playing on a Tuesday and a Thursday, you know, training and then doing a day job. So these people have done a full day's work and then rocked up to Barnet for 7.45 and you've just been a pro all week who's had nothing to do other than focus on your fitness and work at the training ground and you've just been turned over. But there's this, there's no... No one's sat there and ever told me why the conference really needs to be professional. The only reason that you can have is that if you want to get promoted into the football league, you have to, you will go pro. You have to go pro. So you might as well be pro in the conference to give you a, you know to give you an advantage over the oppo to then strengthen you. So if you do go up, if and when you go up, and this is the concept, it's when we go up will be in a better position to be competitive in the, in you know the football league in league 2 so as a result you have all of these you know football clubs that have spent millions of pounds on new stadiums and yet they've never been in the football league they've barely been in the conference for you know the fifth tier for any period of time or even had much success within that division i mean the most fascinating and compelling league that i can see is the National League North. So that is the sixth tier of English football. And that is just the northern part. You've got teams such as Chester, who've been in League One. So they've been a third tier of English football. So Boston United, you have Hereford, you have York City. I mean, York City beat Manchester United you know, in <coughs> you know, 95 in the League Cup. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the conference, you've got Notts County, who were one of the founder members of the Football League, who spent, you know, basically 150 years in the Football League. You've had Dagenham and Redbridge, you've got Barnet, you had Chesterfield, Aldershot, Hartlepool, Torquay. All of these clubs had had success. I mean, Aldershot went out of business in the 90s, you know, were reformed as a Phoenix club at the absolute lowest level and have built their way all the way up to League One have financial problems, and then collapse back into the conference. I mean, you had a situation where Leighton Orient literally were in a penalty shootout in the League One playoffs to go into the championship. They lost that penalty shootout, were taken over by a you know, mad Italian, and he really was mad, I mean, you can read all about it, and his mismanagement led the team to being relegated to the conference. And the thing was, what immediately then happened? A new owner comes in. You know, Justin Edinburgh takes over. Gets them straight back, you know, a couple of years, they're back in, you know, League Two. There's always this sense that these clubs will always come back on at some level. I mean, one of the classic examples was Darlington. Darlington, when I was a kid, used to be a, you know, a pretty good team. And they got taken over by George Reynolds, who had designs on Darlington becoming a huge football club. So he built a 25,000 seat arena for Darlington for when they were going to make it, they'd have the facilities ready made. And <coughs> excuse me. There was no logical basis that Darlington needed a 25,000 seat stadium. Not in a million years. And it inevitably failed. They then went out of business. Went all the drop drop precipitously through the leagues and at one point were literally playing in a 25,000 seat stadium in the sixth tier of English football 
you know, with you know, you know, we're talking less than a thousand fans rattling around this huge stadium. Luckily, they've now moved to their own new stadium, which is about three thousand, and they're in the National League North. And the thing is, all of these clubs in the National League North, in the Conference, they're not settled. They're not just saying, okay, well, at least we're back in business. There is a always a sense of we can go to the next level. I mean, if you take the first season that I kind of followed football in any meaningful sense of the word, so that's 94-95. If we take who was in Division 2 and 3, so Division 3, you had uh, Fulham and Wigan. In the second division, that year you had Bradford, Brighton, Blackpool, Hull City, Huddersfield Town and Birmingham City and Bournemouth. Now, all of those teams have been in the Premier League, most of them for multiple years. Uh, Fulham have got to the Europa League final against Atletico Madrid and were unlucky to lose that. Wigan won an FA Cup final. Uh, Bradford played in Europe, although they shouldn't have done. I mean, Bradford is a classic example. This is a football team that for an extended period of time hadn't had any real great success. And they managed to push themselves up the league got into the championship and under Paul Jewell had a fantastic year and got promoted to the Premier League. Even more amazingly, they stayed there. They managed to stay up on the last game of the season. You know, David Weatherall scores a goal against Liverpool, gets them into the keeps them in and over that summer the the owners spent a huge amount of money. Money that really Bradford City didn't have and this was at the time when the Premier League would give you money but not the sort of idiot money that you have now. So they brought Benito Carbone, put him on absolutely huge wages, and then they put Bradford City into the into Toto Cup. You know, this was the, you know, basically the I suppose the qualifying tournament to get into the UEFA Cup. It was insane. This was a club that had managed to luck their way into the Premier League, you know, by hook or crook, I'm not, you know, being overtly critical, but they had. And they were spending money not only just to try and stay up, they were trying to get into Europe. They were trying to not just survive in the Premier League, they were trying to thrive. Despite every single logical inference telling them that they were very unlikely to survive. And of course they then fell straight through the you know, the leagues, you know, lost a huge amount of money, and are now, you know, really going between leagues, you know, two and league one. But they still then got to a cup final in that period. You know, they beat Arsenal, they beat Villa, they beat Villa over two legs, and were one game away from another spell in Europe. You know, Birmingham City, you know, won the League Cup against Arsenal, played in Europe. You know, you had Huddersfield, you've had Bournemouth. Now, the thing is, is that as much as George Reynolds was absolutely insane to believe that Darlington needed a 25,000-seat stadium and were going to be in the Premier League. Had you pointed out to anyone in the late 90s that Bournemouth were not only going to get into the Premier League, were going to stay in mid-table for several years and are now effectively kicking on to try and qualify for Europe, that person would have looked mental. I mean, it it was mental when they were in, you know, really, you know, between leagues, you know, two and league one. It was specifically mental when they basically went out of business and were nearly relegated out of the Football League and you know didn't own a ground, didn't own a training ground and yet now they have a brand new ground and they're looking to move to another new stadium. The point is there was you know an element of method to George Reynolds' madness. He failed, but 
there's probably finer lines than anyone really wants to admit. But the thing is, if you were to do the same thing in Spain and in France, you don't have those sort of levels of success stories. And not only that is that what you have is you have teams that have success. They can get as high as League 2. And then they fall, but they never come back again. Whereby in English football, it's not, you just don't, you just, it's not just a case of you get a taste for it, you have your year in in the spotlights, and then you fade. These clubs are still trying to get back there. You know, Fulham have been relegated, and you know, want to come back. There's, you know, there is still a huge undercurrent in English football of striving. And it's what makes English football powerful in a way that you can't replicate it. If you compare it to, let's say, American sports, and probably the best example would be baseball. So baseball has the similar kind of strategy, similar kind of structure. So you have the big leagues, you have triple A, double A, single A. But what happens is, is that it's the players that move on. So in other words, you start out at single A, you do well, you get promoted to double A, you do well there, you get promoted to triple A, and you so effectively it's a they call it the farm system. So in other words, people go and watch. Let's say your local team is a single A um, affiliate of the Philadelphia Phillies. So you sit there, and each year you get a whole brand new set of players, and some of them will you know will go on and have major league careers and you get to see them at the beginning. Some of these players will flame out and you know get released and that's the end of their professional baseball career. But the thing is the club never moves. So in other words, you, even if you win your div- division, if you then win the league championship, you don't go into double A. You just stay there. And I suppose the point is is that if you are, you know, the single A places they are very small towns, you know, in the south, in the, the west. They, obviously, you're not going, you know, Rancho Cucamonga is not ever going to compete with Los Angeles in any meaningful sense of the way. In other words, there is an understanding that Major League Baseball, professional baseball, is played in big cities. Chicago, New York, Boston, Washington. Los Angeles, Seattle, those, you know, places that can that can sustain a big league franchise. And the only other places that will get it have to be able to, you know, so in other words, where if Major League Baseball to expand, it would be in Mexico, it would be potentially in Charlotte, and Charlotte's got, you know, North Carolina has got, shoot, you, you'd be talking Austin, Texas, potentially Portland, Oregon, maybe putting a franchise back in Montreal. So places that have the wider metropolitan and suburban areas that could effectively you know, sustain it. Whereby English football, Bournemouth is small. It, it you know, there's, the thing is, it's amazing that they're surviving and that they're doing well in the Premier League. But where can they go? You know, even if they built a twenty thousand seat stadium, eventually the size of Bournemouth, you're never going to. I don't think you'd ever get thirty thousand, thirty-five, forty thousand. But there's still the, a strong sense 
that they're not just there to survive, that they, you have to kick on. And that's because, yep, they have, you know, Russian owners who have put, you know, a large amount of coin into it. But there's always... The fans always have, I suppose, a social contract with their football teams. I think the classic example was um, Robert Maxwell, who... Throughout the sort of late eighties, well, throughout the eighties, was always trying to scheme a way to, you know, create the Thames Valley Royals. So he was always trying to get you know uh, Oxford and Reading to merge. And I suppose the the idea, his thought process was, is that Oxford and Reading, as places, weren't really able to support. A first division team or a long term successful first division team. Now, Oxford had had some success in the 80s, being in division, in the first division, had got through to cup finals, but you know, their ground, the manor ground was really small. Reading had been always a fair, you know, big place, you know, with some potential, but had been mainly mired in the, you know, fourth division, third division. Now, to, to anyone who Obviously, it doesn't have a huge um, understanding of English football history. Let me just clarify. So, effectively, originally what you had was divisions. One, two, three, four. That was the Football League. And then um, you had the advent of the Premier League, which then meant you had Premier League divisions one, two, and three. And they had another rejig where it's now Premier League Championships, Div Leagues one and two. Effectively, I'm always constantly talking about the you know same four divisions, but they have been renamed. But you have to just bear with me on that one. You can blame the football authorities, not me. Divisions 1, 2, 3, 4 were much more straightforward, but there you go. And obviously the conference is the Division 5 below that. At which point, now it's effectively, yeah, it's still the conference and well, the National League, and then you have the National Leagues North and National League South, which is effectively Division 6. Now, now, when you talk about the, I suppose, social contract that fans have, I think the best example I can give you is what happened to Barnet. Now, Barnet had some success as a kind of lower league team. So, what you had a situation where the Football League used to be a closed shop. So in other words, there was no such form of promotion and relegation between the Football League and the non-league. So that's conference and all the other various divisions below that. The only way that you could effectively get in is if one of the members of the Football League was uh, expelled or failed to win re-election. So by re-election, what would happen is if you finish bottom... You'd have to apply to stay in the league and it'd be voted on by the other clubs. If you'd had some financial problems, if your club was a complete mess, you could be effectively you know, denied a re-election, which point you would be chucked out of the Football League and somebody new would then come in to replace you. And so Barnet, for years in the sort of 30s, 40s and 50s, had had some element of success. You know, they'd got through to... Uh, Amateur Cup Finals, they had decent crowds, they had done well in the Southern League, but there was no, 
I suppose, greater sense that this was a football league town or that it was a, a team that was that could potentially one day, you know, arise. Yeah, you know, they had a small ground under Hill, which you know, had a slope on it. It didn't wasn't the sort of place that immediately screamed. You know, it was a sleepy commuter town, just in sort of edge of southernmost bit of Hertfordshire, just on the outer edges of sort of, of you know London, North London. And yet, by the time you reach the sort of late eighties, they established promotion and relegation. Now, usually, what it was, it was used to be just one team would be relegated, and whoever won the conference would then replace them. But as I said again, the rules were always jimmied against the conference teams because their grounds weren't up to spec, and usually it was sort of technicalities more than anything else. The teams that used to finish bottom in the 90s usually more often than not got away with it. But in the 80s, uh, Barnett was taken over by um, Stan Flashman, and he his nickname was King of the West End Ticket Touts. So I, the best way I can probably explain to him, he was a bit of a white boy. So he immediately started pouring money into the club. He um, it, The players wore uh, Yves Saint Laurent blazers. There was uh, champagne in the um, clubhouse and in the boardroom. And, you know, hired Barry Fry. And Barnett then started to really kick on, got into the conference, and eventually won promotion to the Football League in 1991. Now, the thing is, is that and it was an exciting team. You know, they scored lots of goals. They played a very open brand of football. When they made their first game, first ever game in Football League, they won 7-4, which pretty much sums up. And they eventually got promoted into the... Second division in about 1993. And the thing is, the ground was still just ramshackle at best. And I love that ground, and it is an absolute tragedy in my mind that every time I go up past High Barnet, up to High Barnet on the Northern Line, that it's been knocked down. It That was pretty much the end of any element of my childhood, was being 30 and seeing it knocked down. And just not there anymore. The problem is, is that Stan Flashman, there was no infrastructure spending. The ground was still a mess. You know, there was always, you know, if you ever read Barry Fry's autobiography, it sums it up pretty well that, you know, one point that one of the players complained to him that you know, he'd been paid in counterfeit money and that, you know, he'd given some money to his wife to pay for the for some groceries and the, it had been refused, saying that the money was counterfeit. And then the, you know, Flashman having a stand-up row with the player saying, no, my funny money's here, you were given actual money. And it was all very much a house of cards that eventually collapsed. And, you know, Barnet had that year in the second division, how, in, sorry, in what was then Division 2, which is now League 1, finished bottom, had no money. You know, Barry Fry left at this point to, you know, go to South End, went, to, <coughs> went on for a long career in the Football League. Barnet then were absolutely on the, the verge of financial collapse and then got taken over by a uh, IT businessman called Tony Cleanthos. Now, you couldn't have two more separate characters in terms of, and two more separate chairmen. In other words, Cleanthos has spent money on youth development, trying to get Barnet a new ground. You know, he's a well-respected and fairly high-up member in a lot of FA committees. And 
has been a very conscientious owner and has really tried his best to get Barnet you know, as high up as they possibly can do. But I suppose the argument here is this, is that without Stan Flashman's dreaming, without his sense of rocking up to Barnet and going, I want this to be a football league club, you don't get there. And then you don't get to the point, although it was a financial mess because it was always, you know, as if like a great tragedy, fated to end badly. You don't probably get Tony Cleanthos interested in Barnet if they weren't a football league team. If they were just a semi-pro, middle of the road, you know, in the conference on a good day, just happy to be there. I don't think he rocks up there. And what you've now, and the thing is, as a result of Cleanthos being there, there was a focus on women's football. So Barnet were one of the first you know, football teams that took, you know, male football teams that took women's football seriously. Underhill played host to several, you know, women's cup finals. And, you know, the London Bees now play a, you know, are in the um, championship. So they're one division away from playing in the um, Women's Super League. Now, the thing is, last season... You know, they rebranded Barnet Women's Team as London Beast to try and get more you know, support, and I fully understand and respect that. Last season, they played Tottenham Women, Manchester United Women, and that's an amazing achievement. You know, they you for years and years and years, Barnet Council really thwarted any attempt for Barnet Football Club to stay in the borough and get their own state. They'd use the uh, Green Belt, any excuse, and it was mainly the Barnet Tories that really hated the football team. And there used to be, there was an old um, <coughs> athletics ground called Coptal. And eventually it got redeveloped into a sports stadium for Saracens. And it's the ultimate irony. For years they said Barnet, can't, Barnet FC can't use it, but the council were more than happy for Saracens to play there and Saracens put a larger ground there. Any number of different kind of and there will always be part of me that is, I think, angry about that. That you know, basically, the counts, you know, the Tory camp, you know, the Barnet Tories, love nothing more than the idea of going to the rugby and watching Saracens. But obviously, the idea of Barnet Football Club, who had done so much more for the community and everyday, you know, Barnet people. Than Saracens ever could, because Saracens played you know, in Watford, played in many different areas, and I've I've got nothing against Saracens, but you know that they've bent over backwards for them, and not for Barnet. And now that Barnet have had to move out of the borough and are playing sort of just outside of Edgware Stanmore, it's a lovely stadium. Barcelona have used their training ground when they were playing in London, but when Barnet went out of the Football League. They'd started the season, you know, in these sort of um, automatic promotion spots, were just in the, the playoffs, and that's about, I think it's November, and they got Tony Cotty, who'd been, you know, see, famous football player for Everton, West Ham, Leicester, about a year previously, basically been playing in the Premier League, to come and be player manager, and I think everyone thought, this was it. He was going to lead us to the playoffs and get us promoted into yeah, the second division. And eventually, we he was a disaster as a manager and we got relegated. We got relegated last game of the season. We were home to Torquay and it was a winner stays up. It was just probably one of the most 
tense sort of first few minutes of a game that you know I've ever had as a Barnet fan. And then we went three 0 down, which took a lot of the edge off any of the, the nerves. But we went down, and within about two or three years, we were back up into football league. We'd won the conference. And before that, the average crowds for Barnet had been just about sort of three, three and a half thousand. And of that relegation, a thousand people, I've called, I will call them the missing thousand. And those people never came back. Even when we got promoted, the, the, the crowds were in the mid two and a half thousands. And it fascinates me because actually the difference between the conference and, the, and you know, Division 3, there's a gap you know, there's probably a slightly better football played, but there's just as much talent. And the thing is that that you know, Barnet, we they remained professional when they were in the conference. You know, we had rivals. We could play Stevenage. There was all these other sort of fun and interesting grounds that you could go to. And one of the place, one of the away days I did was Forest Green. Now, when I first rocked up to Forest Green, it was a you know, a little stadium. Yeah, really nice. It had a you know, so sort of the the clubhouse, effectively backed social club backed onto the ground, so you could actually sit there in the clubhouse with a beer and watch the game through the window. It was that kind of place. There was less than a thousand people in the ground, and I think Barnet took about two or three hundred of them. And yet now, Forest Green are in the League Two. They're going for promotion because they've been taken over by an owner who built a new ground, and. Part of his dream is that he's an eco-entrepreneur. So he wants... To, and he's effectively using Forest Green as a advertisement board for his, you know, ideas on the world. So in other words, they, they're vegan. The ground is, you know... He wants to... I think he wants to build a new stand. He wants it to be made out of wood so that it's, you know, far more environmentally friendly. And if you look at it, things like, you know, Salford with Peter Lim and the class of 92, buying this club that had never hinted at success. You know, they were, you know, mired in the sort of seventh, eighth tier of English football, and now they're going for promotion in League Two. And this is really, in many ways, the strength of English football, is that you have these people, and that they're willing to take clubs. I mean, the thing is, if you wanted to really resolve the issue of... You know, clubs going out of business. Because really, football at its heart is competitive. The only, you know, meaningful way that you can really improve an outfit is to spend more money on players. That's it. The, the best correlation between success for virtually any football team is how much money you pay them. In other words, the more money you pay players, the better quality of players more likely are to be successful. I mean, you can spend money on youth development, but then really that's another way of trying to buy better players by having better facilities and others the youth team players you do provide are better so when people talk and when fans try and sort of i suppose self-mythologize that they will you know they just follow the team that the results don't matter that, we're, that the team are always awful it doesn't marry up that missing thousand their social contract with Barnet was, I will watch you week after week after week as long as you're in the Football League. The second that you drop out of the Football League, even if the prices go down, even if some of the places you go to away games are more interesting and a nicer ground, more picturesque, even if you have a fantastic local rivalry with Stevenage, 
I'm never going to come back. Well, these people only ever seemingly come back if there's we're about to win a championship or we've got someone really good in the cup and we're you know there's a potential giant killing. And that also doesn't that also even if we have famous players, we had Edgar Davids once as our player manager. And so really, the question, and this is one of the things from following all of the coverage, and like I've said, I. I hate what happened to Barry. I think they were screwed over with the ownership being changed over and the people that took over them were shysters. Now, I think Stan Flashman was a shyster in many ways. But, you know, there was some good, there was some bad. The people that took over Barry were just bad. You know, you know the, the, the last owner said, I never visited Barry. I didn't really care that much. It was just people trying to get some money out somehow. But there's a wider question. You know, the real... In other words, I don't think Barry are going to go out of business. They will be reformed some way, somehow. You know, you've got so many different clubs. You know, Accrington Stanley. You know, the milk advert from the 70s. It's, Google it. But they went out of business. And now they're back in League One. They got promoted last year. Even though the club has, you know, a limited fan base. You know, they've got no money. Their chairman, who I've got a lot of time for, I don't always agree with him, but they're still battling. They're still they're not just content to survive. Yeah, you know, the National League North is probably one of the most competitive divisions, purely because you have so many teams in it who have had great histories, who have been to the absolute mire, who are, have that belief that eventually they will find their right manager, the right players, and they'll get back to their rightful place of being back in the football league. And it, and even though that really the difference between I mean there used to be a difference, you know when you only have one team go up, one team go down, and the, the conference was um was non was semi pro, so you train on a Tuesday and a Thursday. There was a difference. Now most of the teams in the conference are pro. The grounds are all improved. Yeah, you know, the facilities in football grounds in this country are fantastic. The point is is that. The downside of it is a load of those teams have now have gone out of business and are now Phoenix teams. And whether they really needed those new grounds, whether they needed a whether where the Telford United actually needed a conference centre attached to their ground, is an open question. They'd never been in the football league, but there was the belief that if they had one and that the money that they could get from it would then allow them to get up into the football league. You know, now AFC Telford, you know, the Phoenix club are now in the National League North. My point is, is that you could have a nuclear option. You could stop relegation from the Football League and from the Conference. You could sit there and say to all of the 72 clubs in the Football League, you're safe now. The worst that could ever happen is if you could go down to you know, Division you know, League 2. But you're still only ever more than three promotions away from the lights and the money of the Premier League. But it's it's antithetical. It is not what English football has, you know, or even British. We can add in the Scottish clubs. You can add in Wales and and Republic and Northern Ireland. It, there's something special about having that pyramid and that dreams. Even if the end results aren't what you like. I don't like Salford. I don't like the concept that a Malaysian billionaire. And a bunch of rich ex-pros, none of whom who had anything to do with lower league football at all, picking up a club, throwing some money at it, 
and watching it go through the league. It's wrong because I think there are so many other clubs, you know, the, the, you know, the clubs that have, and whose fans have gone through the mire. Your Chesterfields, your Bostons, your Herefords, your Telford, York City, who I think, in, I don't know whether deserve is the right word, but who I think are actually proper football teams. Teams that have done it through hard work, not through some having more money than sense and being able to effectively buy promotions. But the one thing that I haven't really seen is any form of debate over what Berry fans really want their club to mean. I mean, basically, they could reform that football club and they could have a constitution and a set of rules so tight to say this will never happen again. We will never allow ourselves to have a shyster owner who screws the club over and who screws the town over. We will never have this problem ever happen to us again. Even if that means that we end up in National League North or in the conference and we don't ever become a league club again, in any, or, you know, a football league club again. Or if we do, we'd be at the absolute bottom end of League Two. I mean, a lot of the debate was on trying, you know, and this is the mayor and a couple of the MPs and who were trying, and they were trying to get them, you know, re-put back into League Two, and the and the football league voted against it. The clubs themselves voted against it because, to me, as much as the owners screwed them over, Berry screwed the league over because you know they put a load of money into contracts and players. And they couldn't afford them, but there was no punishment for them in not paying their players, and so they got a promotion out of it, whereby the other 23 clubs in the league, who did follow the rules, didn't, you know, couldn't get promoted because they, you know, played by, you know, the notional, you know, the rules that they have. And so really, to some extent, I can understand losing a season and the pain and that's why you'd want to mitigate or circumvent the regeneration phase but actually that's what English football is this competitiveness has downsides in other words if you're you know spending too much money and you go out of business you do have to go down to the you know, the seventh eighth division you do have to battle your way up with all the other clubs that have gone out of business you know, the point is of having such a wonderful pyramid system is unfortunately you will get your Salfords. You can get people, you know, a bit rich businessman, rock up, throw some money at it. And yes, you can get as high as League One. You know, Russian and Diamonds, that was the um, Dr. Martin's millionaire. You know, two, you know, so I, think it's, I think it's just outside of Northampton. Two, you know, lower league clubs, never gone anywhere, you know, um, Merged, created Russian and Diamonds, he took them over, built a beautiful stadium, Neen Park, I've been there. Absolutely lovely. Got them promoted. I mean, in their, I think their last season in the conference before they got promoted, they had a top-of-the-table game against Jova, one of the old-school you know, um, football you know, non-league clubs, the giant killers, over you know, 20, 30, 40 years in the 20th century. They knocked teams out because their, their ground, Old Heish Park, had a massive slope on it. And 9,000 people rocked up. Now, if you had 9,000 people for the AAA playoffs, that would be a good number. For a 5th Division English game, that's amazing. That would be amazing in the 3rd Division in plenty of other European countries. It would be a fantastic you know, result. But there are downsides to it. When, you know, it's, it's a rigid class system. 
but it's fair. If you go out of business, you have to start right at the bottom and work your way up. And clubs can do it. You know, in Britain, there's a sense of the club as a community and as a, a visceral representation, which is why there is this need to believe that underpins it so much more than anywhere else. The nuclear option would, you know, you would, if you sat there and said, you, there's only 72 clubs, you know, you'd have all of the owners would, you know, people who were wanted to you know, own a football club and have success. They're not going to take over conference teams. They take over a football league team. Now, whether there would be good sides or bad sides, unintended consequences. But if you really wanted to take an element of competitiveness out of English football, that is probably better than anywhere else. If you have rules, people will always circumvent them. You know, the Football League has been ferociously competitive forever. It's not something that's just happened because there's some sky money floating around, or if you get to the Premier League, you make money. People wanted First Division football clubs because First Division meant something to the fans, to the country, and to the owners themselves. And there's so many clubs that have had success. You know, the, the, the other team that I haven't mentioned throughout this podcast are Bolton. And yes, they spent too much money. But part of the flip side of it was, is they had lots of years in the Premier League. They finished sixth one year. They went to, you know, they had a European tour. You know, as awful as things are now, there is still a way back for them. And that way back is underpinned with meritocracy. In other words, there's always going to be big clubs. You know, our football pyramid is rigid and hierarchical class system. You know, part of our culture and our history is you know, a rigid hierarchical class system. But there is a fundamental fairness to it. There is a meritocracy to it. If you are the best, you will get there. I mean, like when Barry got into the Football League for the first time, they beat... There was a test match, so the idea was is that the team at the top of the second division would play the team at the bottom of the first division, end of season, one-off test match, and that was Liverpool. And they beat them. Berry beat Liverpool, Liverpool got relegated. Yes, Berry on that day won the battle, but Liverpool won the war. And the point is is that Berry refused to go down, be called Manchester North End, to try and compete with Liverpool. They wanted to complete on their own terms. Because their supporters believed that they wanted and desired Berry to be the best Berry they could be. And that's why football league clubs are, to me, the most powerful, meaningful register of community that this country has. In terms of bringing people together. But also, people always talk about British football's ferocity. Well, why is that? Well, it's a mirror. It's a mirror to... Our dog-eat-dog football pyramid. It's fair. It's meritocratic. It's also ferocious. It's tough. You really, you know, even as low down as the seventh tier, you have teams that have beaten Manchester United. You've had teams that have been famous. You've had teams that have been successful. And they're all trying to get back. They're not happy just to be in the Conference North. Yes, their fans are happy that their clubs still exist, but not without that sunny uplands, the future, that you can get there. I mean, it's... The English football pyramid is about hope, belief and redemption. 
Brighton versus Hereford, 1997. It's your classic one. Brighton have been in the Division 1 in the 80s. Less than, you know, 10 years later, they're playing Hereford. Last game of the season. Whoever, you know, whoever goes down, loses that game, goes down to the conference. Brighton were on the verge of losing their football league place. They're about to lose their ground. And they won that. Where are Brighton now? They're in the Premier League. They have been for the last four years. They're now pushing on trying to get into, you know, not only to establish themselves, they're trying to get into Europe. You know, Hereford, who, you know, that magical cup tie in the 70s against Newcastle, when they won, Ronnie Radford, you know, they, you know, they went down. And they had all manner of financial nightmares. They went out of business. And now, you know, they had to form, I think, in the ninth division. They're now, you know, two notches, two promotions away from the Football League. You know, sometimes, you know, the Football League pyramid offers hope. Sometimes it's false hope. You know, sometimes the end product isn't particularly pretty. Yes, you have your shysters, you have your broken dreams, you have your disappointment. But the underpinning of it, well, no matter how harsh it is, is there's always that hope, the chance to fight another day, that you can go from the bottom to the top. And that redemption and that feeling of hope, when it's a lie together, and that's why the fans keep coming back. They're not just coming back, they're not just coming back because that's what they've always done, and that they're just there to watch the game and go home again. Yes, that is true to a degree but it's the hope it's the sense that your team could be the Bournemouth your team could get that owner your team could have that manager that takes you to the championship to league one and you could compete and that you can have that success Exeter went out of business you know spent years in the conference got promoted into the football league got promoted again into league one when they were in league one they were about a handful of points off the playoffs once you're in the playoffs, anything can happen. They could have been in Division 1. I mean, Yeovil spent years in the Football League. Sorry, years in the conference. Years finally became a... Reached the summit. Reached the Football League. What a fantastic achievement. They spent two years in Division 1. You know, they were 46 games away from the Premier League. Yet, yeah, they're right now back exactly where they started in the conference. But there's always that hope. And that's what football league fans have intrinsically. And that's what it offers. And that's why it is so people are so passionate about it. It's why their football clubs don't go under. And why people still rock up in the 8th division. Even when the club has been knocked out of business. And any logical person would say all hope has been lost. They keep coming back because it's not just redemption. It's not just survival. It's hope. And I suppose the best way to really end this podcast is the I call it the Kermit the Frog doctrine now um, first time they did um, in modern era when they did a Muppet movie for years the um, actor Jason Siegel had um, written this film and spent years trying to get it made it had been a Muppet movie since the 90s and eventually the uh, film got you know, made, 
and not to go into details that offer a huge amount of spoilers. People think that the Muppets are too much of a uh, are no longer relevant to you know the modern world. You know that they're just a, a from you know this is that they're too hippy dippy. You know sort of something of the past, and that they're you know the modern world won't you know, won't relate to them or want them. And so um, Kermit the Frog gives his speech to all of the the Muppets because they come together for a um, sort of reunion. Television show to kind of get their um, deed to the Muppet name back, and he says, "You know, if we failed, and um, we've, we'll have to just start right again at the bottom. But as long as we've got each other, you know, we will, you know, fight our way back to the top." And really, that puts puts it perfectly to where Barry are going to have to do. Yes, you're going to have to go to the bottom. But you can, if you stay together, you can work your way back up to where you came from and back up to the top. Thank you very much for listening.